Hey, good morning again, guys. If you're here for the first time, I just want to say you're, we're especially glad you're here. We've designed this service with you in mind, and it took a lot of courage for you to show up uh, this morning, and I'm proud of you. There are a lot of places that you could have gone this morning, and you made a wise decision, and I know God's going to reward you for that. Um, as we get started, I just want to point out two resources uh, that I've been using a lot as we work through this sermon series. Therefore, uh, one is a book that I've mentioned a thousand times. Um, it's a great book. It was written in the 50s, published in 1952. Um, it's called Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis, or Jack Lewis as his buddies called him. This is just, a, it was designed, uh, it was originally just a bunch of radio talks uh, that were broadcast to soldiers who were on the European continent after World War II, and they needed to fill airtime, and they thought this would be a good idea, and so they did it. And then uh, Jack Lewis actually turned him into a book. This is a great book. It is slightly heady just because it's 60 years old, and so you're wading through 60-year-old English, and because C.S. Lewis is smarter than me, and probably smarter than you. Um, that's Okay. This other book is called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Uh, it's by a guy named Richard Hayes. He's a professor at Duke, um, and he's a, a New Testament theologian. Uh, and he, uh, this book is something that I'm leaning on as we wade through uh, the morality, the ethical teaching of the New Testament in this sermon series, Therefore. Um, that book is very heady. He uses, in, in one paragraph, I learned three new words the other day, um, and I had to stop and tell Claire, did you know that occlude is a word? Not like exclude, but occlude. No idea. Or the word suasion, instead of persuasion, just suasion. Didn't know it was a word. Um, very smart. Let me uh, just prime you uh, that we are going to talk about sex today. And so uh, I'm not going to blush about that. I'm not going to hide that from you. We're going to talk about it because the Bible talks about it. I understand there's probably like three categories of people in here. Uh, we have... Um, Fourth graders through uh, like marriage and, and especially you parents of fourth and fifth graders, sixth graders, uh, middle schoolers, uh, some of you may be a little bit uncomfortable with this, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. Uh, your eight-year-old is already learning about sex, whether you are talking to them or not. And so it is our job as a church to cast a more beautiful, more holistic, more compelling vision of what sex is, why God created it, and how it is to be enjoyed uh, than our culture. And so we're going to talk about it flatly. Uh, I can show you all over the place in the Bible uh, where both Jesus taught about sex in front of kids and where Paul teaches about sex in front of kids. Then there's a group in the middle um, who, are, uh, who are like post-pubescent um, and like pre-hormonal drop-off. Um, I don't know what you call that. Um, for whom there are uh, sexual appetites, for whom uh, sex is a part of their life or at least uh, something that they are aware of. And then there's a group of people who are kind of like post-hormonal, uh, uh, post-sexuality. And, and there'll be a temptation to check out if you're in that last group to say, this is not applied to me. It's not something I'm going on. I'm just grateful we as a church are that generational. Like, thank God for putting us together. Um, but the last group, we're going to be talk talking about sin in general. And so do not check out. And you also, now that you uh, have reached sage age, uh, have an there are people in your life who are thinking about this, who are asking these questions. There are uh, 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds who are asking these questions and trying to walk these roads. And so it's important for you to know it because it's all going to drive us to Jesus. 
I don't have a clue what scripture's in the bulletin because I gave it to Sarah on Tuesday. Um, but what I'm going to preach out of today, what I want to read you in a minute, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn there now and put your thumb in it. Um, but we just heard Colossians 3, the whole first 17 verses, uh, where Paul starts off by saying, uh, therefore, because you have died with Christ and been raised in Christ, because your life is hidden in Christ, because you have been spiritually super glued to Christ, verse 5 says, therefore, therefore put to death, therefore put to death whatever in you belongs to your earthly nature. And then he's going to list out things. And he starts with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Uh, That word right there, the first word in the list, sexual immorality, is one word in Greek. It's the word porneia, from which we get our word uh, pornography. Um, And the word for the word in the Bible uh, simply means a sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So it includes adultery, it includes uh, sleeping with prostitutes, it includes uh, sleeping uh, with singles, it also includes uh, incestuous relationships. It's a word uh, that, that, says, that, that, that means uh, more or less that. And it just, it means uh, sex outside of the confines of marriage between uh, one man and one woman. But you see that the list grows. It starts with with an actual sex act there, sexual immorality with any kind of sex um, outside of the confines of marriage. And then it moves to impurity, which is a step towards towards just any kind of like vague, uh, vague gray areas where... Uh, where there's impurity uh, stepping into it. Uh, you could think of the 50 shades of gray, a hint toward or, or about this impurity. And then you move towards lust. Lust is a thought life thing. Uh, lust is something that happens inside of me. It is a desire that wells up inside of me. It is um, the want, the hunger uh, to objectify, to turn another person into an object which I can consume. And then he finishes by showing us the heart of all of these things. He's building from external behavior through the gray area into the thought life and finally down into the seat of ourselves with evil desires and greed or covetousness. Greed and covetousness are an idolatry. He says that's idolatry because what that is is saying, if I had that, if I had that person, or if I could just do this, or if I could just experience this, then my life would be complete and I would know ecstasy and and transcendence in a way uh, that is uh, that would satisfy me that would satiate me that's just what verse 5 says can I just pause for a second and realize uh, that, that that just took the air out of the room a little bit my introduction in that and the reason why is uh, what Jack Lewis what C.S. Lewis says uh, C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity he says chastity that is um is chastity and singleness and fidelity in marriage is the most unpopular of all Christian virtues. Chastity is the most unpopular of all Christian virtues, and there's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule, he's meaning what the Bible teaches and what Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years is this, either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct that has gone wrong. 
This is by far the most unpopular of all uh, Christian uh, virtues. And when we talk about uh, sexuality, when we talk about living a life of godly character, uh, this is the one uh, that, that comes up uh, most. Uh, when I go to marry people, I have yet to be approached by two people to be married who just said, we are not Christians, we do not believe in God, we do not believe in Jesus. So everybody who's come to me has claimed the name of Jesus, and yet the vast majority of them, I'd say better than 75% of them, are living together um, and engaging in sexual activity. And so one of the first conversations I have to have with them is I want you to, to move out, and I want you to stop sleeping together between now and your wedding. And if that is not satisfying, if God's plan for your life is not good enough, well, you got the rest of your life to make up for it. But I think you'll find it is. And so let's figure out what Paul's talking about here, why Paul is so hyped up about this, why this starts the list. And to do that, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, where he actually um, expounds on this in a culture uh, that is uh, remarkably similar to ours, where he gives rationale for why uh, the gospel demands, why the gospel necessitates us putting to death sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, we'll start at verse 12, and I'm going to read uh, the, down to 20. If you have a Bible, I hope you read this with me, because I don't want you to think I'm making any of these words up. Verse 12, it says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Corinth is a lot like us. Verse 12, uh, Paul, in verse 12, Paul quotes the great lie of our age, right? He quotes it twice, actually. The lie is this, I have the right to do anything. Verse 12 says, I have the right to do anything, you say. And then, again, I have the right to do whatever I want. Colloquially, we say this all the time. And Paul repeats it multiple times, anticipating this year prevalence and perseverance that such an idea would have in a culture. You know this idea, right? You hear it in your children's arguments. You hear it in our music. The youth in the, song, the, youth in the church uh, will know a song called Do What I Want by Little Uzi Vert. He is not particularly uh, talented in my estimation, uh, but he is very famous. But it is not just other people. You know the best and the worst part of parenting is that my kids say out loud the words that are going on inside of my head. This is the air we breathe. I can do what I want. I, 
I can do whatever I like. I have the right to make my own decisions and no one can tell me what to do. This is the air we breathe and the the ocean we swim in. So much so uh, that last year, the Oxford English Dictionary defined the word of the year as post-truth. And it defined the word post-truth as this. Post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. A pastor in Texas, a guy named Matt Chandler, summarizes uh, this. He says, isn't that amazing? Like, who cares what's true as long as I feel good? It doesn't matter what your facts are if I get to choose what makes me happy. There is no truth except what makes me happy. What makes me happy rules the world. There is no authority but my authority. That's post-truth. Now take that to the logical conclusions, and it's anarchy. All right? We're in a post-truth area, brothers and sisters. You can't take anything to your logical conclusions because that's illogical. This is not a new idea. This idea that I get to do whatever uh, makes me happy and that no one will put confines on me is not a new idea. It's actually the idea that Pharaoh gave voice to back in Exodus. Moses comes to him and says, let my people go, right, on behalf of God. And what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh doesn't just say no. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is God that God thinks he can tell me what to do? Who is God that I should obey him, that he, I should do what he says I should do and not do what God says I should not do? This is the objective. This is the objection in our culture. It is not countercultural. It is not even offensive to believe in God. The vast majority of Americans believe in God. Something like 97% of us believe there is a God. But it is when God makes ethical demands on my life or he makes exclusive demands on my worship that I start to get offended. But Colossians answers. Moses answers Pharaoh's questions, who is the Lord that I shall obey him with two incredible truths. The first is that the Lord is our maker, that God made us and so he knows how we work. He knit us together in our mother's womb and he needs, he knows what we need to work and how to best operate. And he knows the things that short circuit our souls and rust our hearts. Friends, you and I were made to run on faith the same way a gasoline motor was designed to run on unleaded fuel. Diesel and water and Coca-Cola are great, useful things. Water is even a necessary thing, and for some of you, Coca-Cola is too. But if you put diesel or water or Coke into your car's gasoline motor, it will destroy it. It will destroy the machine. You can put Red Can you put a Red Bull in your car's gas tank? I guess. Can you put water in your motor? Yeah, I guess you can, but at what cost? The real question is not can you, but should you? Is it beneficial or helpful? And that's the initial ethical test that Paul gives Christians when making moral decisions. In verse 12, he says, is it beneficial? You saw verse 12, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Paul is begging you to think for a second about whether the things you do because you can, because you want to, are actually helping you or hurting you. Paul is challenging the church in Corinth and the church at Oakland to stop and ask, what are you hoping to accomplish through flippant sex or pornography or racy literature? What is it you want sex to do or provide in your life? Now, is it actually doing that for you? Is it it accomplishes what you're looking for? Because you see, friends, Paul is teaching that sin always sabotages. Sin always leads to suffering. If you choose to sin, you choose to sabotage yourself, and you choose to suffer. 
When Jesus gives commands or directives or imperatives, he's handing you the owner's manual to your own heart. When the Bible outlines blessings and curses for specific actions, it is in some huge way trying to outline the way human beings were designed to operate. C.S. Lewis again says this. He says there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked, what do you think God is like? And the schoolboy thought for a second and said, as far as I can figure, God is the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself. And then he's trying to stop it. And I'm afraid that this sort of idea is the idea that morality raises in a good many people's minds. Something that interferes, something that stops you having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule there is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that, because of course, there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but really do not work. My kids taught me this lesson again this week. We were out behind our house uh, clearing Greenbrier out of the woods, and I handed... uh, I handed Jack a pair of pruning clippers, the small ones, and he immediately uh, tries to clip a few times, and then he just turns them around and starts beating on things as if it were a hammer because it looks like that's what ought to work, I guess. I don't know. But God is saying that often we are just that foolish with our lives, with our hearts, with our bodies. We don't pay attention to how it's supposed to, and when God is correcting us, it's it's to lead us towards life. We can trust Jesus because he's our maker and he knows how we operate. But more than that, who is the Lord that I shall obey him? Colossians reminds us that Jesus is our savior, that he has saved us, that he saved us by dying in our place to ransom us. He saved us from what? Ransomed us from what? From going to hell, yes. To let us into heaven, yes. But remember, those terms have more to do with a relationship in God's presence than a place in the universe. But what has he saved us from? You see, slaved, I mean saved and ransomed are both slavery terms. You and I were slaves to sin, actually enslaved, habitually conditioned to the point where we could not not sin. We were compelled to do it, propelled towards rebellion. In the brilliant words of the AA First Step, you and I were powerless over our sin and our lives had become completely unmanageable that we were powerless to stop our compulsive drinking or lying or cheating or flirting or fighting or cursing or procrastinating or judging or othering or resenting. You and I were slaves. That's why Paul says, the second time he says, I have the right to do all things, and then he counters the argument with a simple question, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is saying, if you can do anything, quit. If you can't quit, you're not free. You are a slave. If you cannot quit, then that thing you are fighting for is not your right, it is your master. It's not your right, it is your vice. So Paul asks you, are you free or are you compulsive? Because that's what sin does. Sin makes us addicts. You may not know the 12 steps or carry a white chip, but when Christ found you, you were a sin junkie. And I don't say that to make light of addiction. Addiction just gives us a window into the state of every one of our souls. Every time that that we, we sin because we want to exert our freedom, but every time we do so, we actually forfeit our freedom and become slaves. And this should scare you. 
I hope it gives you a theological framework that compels you to obey Jesus. Within this framework, we now turn to perhaps what C.S. Lewis says is the most countercultural teaching in the Bible, ethical teaching, therefore sexuality. And Paul is going to take those general rules that I just outlined, and he's going to apply them to sin, and he's going to apply them specifically to sexual sin. And so Paul lived in a world like ours where sex was everywhere. Sex and sex acts were common conversation. They were the main sources of entertainment. They were parts of pagan worship. They were murals painted on public buildings and sculptures for public gardens. Not long ago, yeah, we're still good. I'm never going to finish this sermon on time. I'm just going to warn you, and I don't really care. Uh, not long ago, HBO made a miniseries called Rome, and my New Testament professor said, if you want to understand the, bi- the world that Jesus lived in, watch that series. And so my wife and I, taking the advice of my New Testament professor, sat down and we turned it on. Claire, you remember this? And we turned it on, and we did not make it through an episode because uh, there was, it was just... Um, lewd scene after lucidious scene after sex scene and at first we chalked it up to hbo excess and so i went back to my professor and i asked him about it and my professor corrected me he said my professor told me that roman sexuality would make hbo blush that roman culture was one of the most sexualized of all time in that culture there were two dominant myths that had to be rejected and paul actually quotes both of them in this letter to the corinthians And then he articulates how the Christian gospel honors sex above any sensuality and at the same time trivializes sex below any asceticism. You see, the reason Paul and Jesus and I have to outline the way of freedom to you to think about sex is because sin is actually killing you is this. That sentence didn't make sense. The reason that we have to outline this and that you can't see it for yourselves is that as often as we sin, we justify it and we rationalize it. And this makes us feel perfectly rational, but to those looking on the outside in, this is the height of insanity. And that's why the second step in AA is coming to believe that God can restore me to sanity. The second step involves admitting not just that I'm powerless over my sin and my life is out of control, but that I'm actually engrossed in a form of insanity from which God must rescue me. And he does so through his scriptures and his Holy Spirit. So what myths about sex did the Corinthians church believe and use to justify having sex before marriage or having sex with prostitutes or marrying relatives or having adulterous affairs or as the kids say, having a side piece? Well, Paul says it, he quotes it in verse 13. Verse 13 says, You say, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The Corinthians are trying to say, Paul, chill out, dude. You're being really, really prudish about all this sexually repressive teaching. You don't know that sex is just an appetite like hunger or thirst. When you're hungry, you grab a pizza, and when you're thirsty, you grab a Coke, and when you're randy, you find a partner puritanical people just need to get over themselves and realize it's not that big of a deal. Changing sex partners is just like choosing a dinner for a restaurant. C.S. Lewis, again, writing in 1952, says that you and I have been fed all day long on good, solid lies about sex. We've been told, till one is sick of hearing it, that sexual desire is the same state as any of our other natural desires. And if only we abandon the silly old Victorian idea of hushing it up, everything in the garden will be lovely. But this is not true. The moment you look at the facts and away from the propaganda, you will see that it is not. 
This is an ancient myth called the appetite myth, and it's everywhere. It's sold to us in TV shows, in magazines. There are whole episodes, multiple episodes, in Star Trek devoted to this idea. I was reading a teen sci-fi novel not long ago, and the idea of casual, non-committal sex to address a bodily urge was presented to 13- and 14-year-olds. This myth is actually built on a larger myth that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. It's only what we do with our minds and our souls, that our bodies don't affect any other areas of our lives. And then living in this Roman world of hypersexuality, there was a group of people in Corinth and all throughout the ancient world that, 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 that bounced back, that pushed back, that, that, that ran back against this. And they said an opposite lie and an opposite myth. And this myth is actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It tells us that there were some people in Corinth that taught the opposite. They looked out on a world with, where every sexual impulse was celebrated and justifies, and they flew to the other extreme by denying every sexual impulse. And instead of deifying sexuality, they demonized it. They taught that sex was bad and dirty and a thing to be avoided at all costs. So they said in verse 1, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This view is more generally associated with traditional societies, and it says that sex defiles, that it contaminates, and that truly, sexual, truly spiritual people are asexual people. This view says that to be a holy person, you must deny every sexual impulse. The idea tends to grow out of an idea that our bodies are bad and that all bodily passion is bad. And maybe... You grew up in the American South in a religious family and the only teaching you ever heard on sex was don't do it. And if there was anything added to it, they might have gotten to don't do it till you're married. And so you intuited or assumed that it was shameful and so you're ashamed. You're uncomfortable with this conversation. You're, trying, you're looking at your watch and you're trying to get out of here. You're ashamed of your sexual desires, not to mention your sexual failings. Christianity's moral teaching rebukes both of these lies. The lie says that it's just an appetite and the other one that says it's just dirty. On one hand, it tells unmarried people don't have sex at all and don't fret about it. You're not missing out on any esoteric salvific pleasure. And to the married people, Christianity says have sex, enjoy it. Do not withhold sex from your partner, but rather give yourselves to one another completely. Why? Why does Christianity say that? And, and what are we looking for when either we, whether we deny our sexuality or we deify our sexuality? What are we trying to do? Well, when we deify our sexuality, when we turn to all sexual urges, all sexual desire is legitimate and justified and should be satisfied like every appetite I have, what we're doing is we're searching for something transcendent, connection with other people. We want intimacy. We want excitement. We want power. And when we deny it, we want a cure from shame. We want to feel clean and we want to feel a connection to the transcendent. And we think that will happen not in embracing ecstasy, but in denial of ecstasy and asceticism. But both destroy the possibility of the thing they set out to accomplish. So let's turn to Jesus and to the gospel and see how Jesus offers us all that our hearts desire. And in so doing, we will see that sin actually robs them of us. So who is the Lord that I should obey him, that I should obey his teaching on sex? Well, the Lord is the one who invented sex. He gave sex to human beings, not just as a way of procreating, but for our pleasure and our relationship building. Sex was God's idea, and he does not blush every time babies are made. 
God created the world good. And over and over again in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates something. And he says, that was good. He, does, he creates something. He says, that was good. And then he creates man and woman, and he teaches them about two becoming one flesh. And then he says, it was very good, very good. We know from Jesus' words that that phrase, two become one flesh, refers both to the mystery of marriage where two give themselves so completely and consistently to one another that they become an inseparable unit, that there is no longer me without you, there's no longer me without Claire. To help this emotional then, to help this union, this emotional and spiritual bonding, God gave humanity a physical bonding. And so Paul, following Jesus' teaching, says that every time I have sex with someone, the two become one flesh. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 16. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Paul is not just saying that their bodies are united like puzzle pieces, but rather their persons, their very selves, are being united their souls are being united. And deep down, we know this. That's why in our culture, we still talk of sex as giving ourselves to one another. And neurobiologists and psychologists know this. And they will tell you that when you have sex, when you climax, your brain releases the same chemicals that are released during childbirth to help a mother and a baby bond. God created sex to bond a husband and a wife together, to superglue their souls together. So, sex makes our souls sticky, and we cannot help it because God wired it all the way into our biology. And so casual sex simply does not exist because your biology will not let you give your body to someone without giving them your heart. That's why, that's why uh, being flippant with sex leads to gross emotional and, 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 psycho and psychological pain because I've given away a piece of myself. That's why G.K. Chesterton will say that sex, it will either be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Extramarital sex writes checks that are with our bodies that our hearts try to cash and can't. This is an idea about sex that exalts it higher than any other religion ever would. And it explains the rationale behind sex in marriage exclusively. In marriage, a man and a woman give themselves completely to one another without condition or clause. They give themselves financially and emotionally and socially and legally and mentally. Think about the vows. We say in plenty and in want. That's a financial commitment. In joy and in sorrow, that's an emotional commitment. In sickness and in health, that's a physical health commitment. And then we say these incredible words, with all I am, and with all I have, I honor you. In marriage, there is the possibility for radical intimacy because, I, because there, I offer radical vulnerability. I make myself vulnerable in every area, and sex is not just a powerful physical symbol for the emotional and psychological and personal nakedness required for two people to become one. Sex is actually meant to be a catalyst in that process. I think sex may be one of the re I'll skip this part. I'll put it on the blog. This is why, this is also, conversely, uh, why Christianity can also condemn non-sexual emotional affairs. And these are unbelievably common, where a man or a woman gives themselves completely emotionally to someone other than their spouse. 
They haven't slept with them, but they spend hours every day talking secretly to this other person about intimate things, their fears, their hopes, their dreams, things God intended for them to share with their wife. It's also why, uh, why the Bible will condemn uh, use of pornography because the same things are happening in my brain and in my soul and in my heart that sabotage and destroy me. I'm bonding to these imaginary people who are being exploited and objectified. But the gospel goes even further. Let me sex is not limited to marriage because it's so dirty it must be hidden. It's limited to marriage because it's so powerful it needs strong walls of marriage to be enjoyed properly. Outside of it, it leads to death. The same way dynamite in the wrong place kills, but in the right place makes ways through mountains. But the gospel of Jesus goes further, as Paul points out. Paul says over and over that this two becoming one, this union that occurs in sex, inside of marriage, was created to help us understand the unfathomable union that believers have with Jesus. Sex is just a shadow of the communion and the intimacy that God offers to you in Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 16, and 17, that's what it's trying to say. Look at it again. It says, it reminds us, it was said about sex that the two shall become one flesh. That's the end of verse 16. But whoever is united to the Lord is one with him in spirit. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says that Jesus' spirit lives inside of us, that you and I have been super glued to Jesus in a way that is more real, more intimate, more lasting than sexual union, more than marriage itself. You and Jesus are inseparably linked. You and Jesus, like Siamese twins in that movie uh, Stuck on You, are, are together in some way that verse 16 says something crazy that who you have sex with, you unite Jesus to. Jesus has sex with? That you are a member of Christ's body, that you cannot fathom yourself, that you do not exist apart from Jesus. It's not like Jesus, hey, wait over there, I gotta be, I'll be back in about five minutes. You can't do that. You've been super glued to him. And it's a way that is more intimate and lasting than sexual union, more than marriage itself. You and Jesus are inseparably linked. When God the Father thinks of you, he thinks of Jesus. And when the Father thinks of Jesus, he thinks of you. There is no more you without Jesus. You and Jesus have been united in a way that brings emotional ecstasy, that brings more excitement and adventure than you could ever imagine, that brings adventure and spice to your life that no other human being can. Because what makes uh, sex so incredible is being being seen as you are and being embraced, being known completely and being loved. It's what makes it so risky too is that I show you me and then you can either laugh at me or you can embrace me in being seen and welcomed. But friends, that's just a pale reflection of the relationship that God wants to have that, that all this is driving towards because Jesus knows every part of you. He has seen every piece of you. It says before him all souls are laid bare that before him you are not just physically naked, you're emotionally and spiritually naked and that he responds not by laughter or disdain or I guess so, or why not, or sure, there's nobody else around. But with my beloved, I have been waiting for you to come to me. I have dreamed of this moment when you would respond to me, when you would welcome me. And there he 
there. He knows everything and he welcomes you. And where does he do this most profoundly? On his cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that on the cross, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, the cross is God's public display of affection. You remember when you were kids and you started dating and you, you would go to hold hands with your partner and your mom or your dad would reach over there and smack your hands? You remember that? Or you'd be sitting in the back seat and dad would adjust the, the mirror. I can remember my parents beating it into me, no PDA, no PDA, no PDA, no PDA, no PDA. They didn't even call it public displays of affection. It was always PDA. God doesn't have any no PDA rules. On the cross, God publicly displays his affection for you. And he does so in a way that makes every fairy trail, fairy tale true. The love that you have wanted, the love that you have dreamed of, the love that every culture hopes for, the love that every country song promises and cannot deliver, the love that every princess sleeps and waits on, the love that every prince is supposed to bring, the love that the mythical one that is supposed to be out there, your soulmate is supposed to bring, is accomplished on the cross of Jesus. It is a love that would die to rescue you, a love that is stronger than death, a never-ending love, a love that will do anything to save his his beloved, a love that will, will fight for you, that wages war to rescue you, a love that heals every wound, a love that sees you just as you are down to your bones and says, my beauty, my love, a love that is inseparable. There on the cross, Jesus declared his vows to you. I choose you. I choose you to be my wife for better or worse, richer or poorer, joy or sorrow, sickness or health. And then he skips the next part because not even death will separate us. Not even hell will stand in the way of my affection for you. I, with all I am and with all I have, I honor you. With everything I got, I, I, I honor you. Will you have me? Will you marry me? Will you quit running and will you come home? And will you find union and intimacy better than anything you could ever imagine? Would you experience closure and completion and, and fulfillment better than anything you could imagine? When you see that, when you see Jesus hanging on the tree, displaying his affection for you, when you see in Corinthians and Colossians that he has united himself to you in a way that sex just points to vaguely, you will be set free from tyrannical, compulsive, exploitative lust. And when you see that, your chastity, your fidelity, your sexual righteousness will not be motivated by prudish guilt or puritanical shame, but from love, from affection, from hopeless abandon to the lover of your souls, the lover you were made for. Your only soulmate. The one. The Christ.
Jesus, you make us blush. But we add our prayers to that of your saint, John Donne, who said, Lord, take me to you. Imprison me, for I, except that you enthrall me, I will never be free. And I'll never be chased unless you ravish me. Jesus, would you satisfy the deepest desires of our heart? Would you tie us to yourself? Would you betroth us to yourself? Would you marry us? And would that give us the courage and the forbearance and the fortitude to flee from temptation, to put to death, to murder, to destroy all the physical acts that we do that dishonor you with our body and to wage war against the evil desires in our heart until you alone reign, until you alone our lover of our souls. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.